0: Uh, two Bible readings. Firstly, it's Amos chapter 9, which Tim is going to read, and then John chapter 2, which Trina is going to read.
1: Hi, everyone. It's uh, on page 849 of the Pure Bible, 849. Starting at verse 11. In that day, I will restore the fallen booth of David, I will repair its gaps restore its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, so that they may, re- that, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations that are called by my name. This is the Lord's declaration. He will do this. Hear this. The days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed, the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. They will rebuild and occupy ruined cities, plant vineyards and drink their wine, make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted. From the land I have given them, Yahweh your God has spoken.
2: if you can turn to John chapter 2 on page 977. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained twenty or thirty gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the chief servant, and they did. When the chief servant tasted the water after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then, after people have drunk freely, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now, Jesus performed this first sign in Cana of Galilee. He displayed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, And he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them, since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord.
0: If you haven't met, my name is Paul. It's good to see you tonight. We're in John's gospel, so please keep your Bibles open to page 977, uh, John chapter Uh, 2. Happy birthday to Margaret for today. Happy birthday. Let's pray. Uh, Father, thank you for your word which is living and active. It continues to uh, shape us, to teach us, to train us, to correct us and to rebuke us. And we sit here tonight as your humble servants, uh, asking you and begging for you to do a mighty work in us, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to start by sharing with you uh, some of the highs and lows of being a pastor. The highs and lows of being a pastor are not shaped by buildings or budgets, although they do cause a bit of stress. And the highs and lows are not shaped by systems and processes and databases and church services as such. The highs and lows of being a pastor are shaped by, by people, people like you. Uh, the highs and lows are shaped by people and their, their walk with Jesus. So the highs are obvious. Uh, some people, are, they just fill your heart with joy. Some people are an absolute delight because you, you see them with such confidence in Christ, and you see them with such contentment in Christ. And you see them with such certainty about the future. And you watch these people and they, they soak up the scriptures and they ooze godliness. And you see them in the, the darkest days and the, the greatest trials and they're trusting in Jesus. And it just warms your heart to see their faith flourishing. So if they're the highs of a pastor, what do you think the lows of a pastor are? The lows of the pastor are, are, are people whose faith seems to be flaky, whose faith is fading, who seem to find more, more joy and more contentment in Things of the world than they do of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, people who once walked closely with Jesus but they seem more interested in fitness and family and, and wealth and work than doing Jesus and people who even the saddest case who once walked with Jesus but now no longer call themselves a believer that breaks your heart They're the highest and lows of being being a pastor, just people. So let me ask you, would you say that your faith is, is flourishing? Are you growing in your faith? Are you delighting in Jesus? Or is your faith fading? Is your faith flaky? And I've discovered as a pastor that whether someone's faith is flourishing or whether it's fading, it's got absolutely nothing to do with how much Bible knowledge you have. It's got nothing to do with how often you serve or how often you give. And it's got everything to do with how well you know, well you know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's got everything to do with whether you are growing in your appreciation and adoration and, and worship of the Lord Jesus, and you're knowing Jesus better. It sounds so simple, and it is simple. If you want your faith to flourish, know Jesus better. If you want your faith to fade, take your eyes off Jesus and look at the world. You see, the problem with so many so-called professions of faith, people who stuck their hands up at one time, is that they never actually knew the Jesus they were called to follow. And, And the problem with many people who are fading or flaky in their faith is that The truth be told, they're more in love with the church than they are in Christ. They're more in love with the the community and the social life that the church brings than they are with Jesus. But the church disappoints you. People disappoint you. People upset you. And when that happens, they walk away because they weren't in love with Jesus. If you want your faith to flourish, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus. How does the old hymn put it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow dim in the light of His glory and grace. And that is the truth. If you fix your eyes on Jesus, if you're more in love with Jesus, then the things of this earth will not satisfy you. The things of this earth will not, you won't find your security in. The more you fix your eyes on his glory and his grace, the more you in love you are with Jesus, the more your faith will flourish. So tonight we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus again and look into his wonderful face and his glory and his grace. And I pray the things of earth that you're tempted to seek your security in will just grow dim. We're in John chapter 2. It's often called the the book of signs because John shapes his whole book around these seven signs. A sign is just a pointer. It points us to a different aspect of Jesus' character. Do you know you can never say you know Jesus fully? There's always more of Jesus to know. He's like this beautiful diamond that you just, just never know him fully. You just get a new glimpse of his character. A new glimpse of who he really is. And what I find interesting is that when he starts this book of signs, he doesn't start with the, you know, the, the raising of Lazarus. He doesn't start with the walking on water. He, he starts with this really obscure sign of water into wine. Perhaps that's a link back to Exodus, the miracle of water. So who is this Jesus that you're called to follow? John chapter 2, please keep your Bibles open. I'm going to pretend that I'm the Apostle John, and I've got my grandson, let's call him John Junior, let's be American, and John, John Junior, and little John, let's call him little John. Sitting on my, no, John, John, Jonathan, and John T, that's the kind of thing that they do, isn't it? Sorry if you're American, that's not an offensive comment. (laughs) I'm just getting daggers from some American people. So little John, my grandson, is sitting on my knee, and he's saying, Grandad, tell me the story of when you met Jesus. And so I pull my book off from the shelf. So little John, I was with Andrew one day, and John the Baptist suddenly said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I was shocked. And I said to Jesus, Can we come and stay with you? And we spent the whole day with Jesus, and he taught us who he really was, and we followed him, we believed in him. It's about three days later, about three days later, we went to a wedding, and, and I was there, and Andrew was there, and Simon Peter was there, and Philip and Nathaniel, they were all there, and Jesus was there, and Jesus' mother was there. It was a wonderful wedding. And bizarrely, I, I can't actually remember who the bride and groom were. That doesn't really matter. It was a wonderful wedding. In those days, uh, wedding receptions lasted a whole week. At the kind of weddings, it's important whose table you sat at, doesn't it, if you have got stuck with them for a whole week. There was singing, there was dancing, there was great food, there was wine flowing. I'm not sure who frowned first, you know. You see, out in the reception room, it was pure serenity and celebration. In the kitchen... I could see the pandemonium. The waiter picked up the bottle and said, This is the last one. It can't be. We can't have run out of wine. I don't know why Mary got dragged into it. Maybe she did the catering. I don't know. But, but Mary found Jesus and said, They don't have any wine. And I expected Jesus to say to his mother, Oh, thanks for telling me, mum. I could help, but he didn't. Jesus said, what has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? It's quite abrupt, isn't it? It's quite rude. And then he had this really obscure saying, my hour has not yet come. I didn't understand that. When I lived with Jesus for many years, he often said, my hour has not yet come, and I remember the day he said, my hour has come. And that's the day they took him off to be crucified. Anyway, Mary said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know whether anyone's told you to do something stupid. I don't know if said to you, you must do this, and you're thinking in your mind, that is ridiculous, why would I do that? Well, Jesus said to these servants, see those six jars of water, the six jars that you use to purify yourself, to cleanse yourself, the the Jewish purification jars. Grab those jars and fill them with with water. And I'm thinking, the problem's not water, the problem is wine. How's that going to help? But they obeyed him, and they filled the jars to the brim. And then Jesus said, Draw some water out and take it to the chief servant. And I could see them thinking, "This man is is an idiot." But they did it, and they took the uh, the water to the chief servant. And I was kind of embarrassed. I'm thinking, he's about to take a sip of water, but he did this. He went, hmm what a fine vintage of wine that is. And I'm thinking, there was water in that jar, not wine. And then he calls the the bridegroom over and he says, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people have drunk freely, the inferior, but you have kept the fine wine until now. He's basically saying, most people, uh, they, they serve all the the best wine first, and then when people have had a bit too much to drink, they bring out the plonk. But this guy has kept the best vintage till last. So I'm looking at these 500 litres of wine, and it's the best vintage. And suddenly, I remember the Old Testament in Amos chapter 9, when it says, when the Messiah comes, the mountains will drip with fine wine. And I'm thinking, he is the Messiah. And I believed in him. It was a great wedding, but then we went on holidays for a few days down to to Capernaum, which is just down the coast. And we stayed there with with Mary and the other disciples and Jesus' half-brothers, you know, James and all the other half-brothers that Mary's the uh, kids of Mary. But we only stayed there for a few days because it was a Jewish Passover. Now, little John, you remember what what the Passover is, don't you? The Passover is the time when all God's people went up to Jerusalem, to the temple, to remember, to celebrate. At the time when God passed over his people, he spared his people, he spared them from death because they sheltered in the blood of the Lamb. And every year they went up to celebrate the Passover. So so we're there with Jesus and we're just going up to the temple. There's, There's lots of people there and we try and get into the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, but we can't get into there. Do you know why? Not because it's full of people, it's full of animals. It's full of doves and oxen and sheep and goats. And I know, I know that people had to offer a sacrifice. And I know that people wouldn't walk a hundred miles with a sheep on their shoulders. I know they would buy a sheep close to the temple and i know that they'd have to have their money changed so they could pay the temple tax but those stalls used to be down in the valley but the religious leaders had turned the temple into a marketplace and i watched jesus and he got this these cords and he he made a whip out of them and then he stormed into the the temple, he went to Benjamin's stores and he says, Get these out of here. And he got the, the tables and he turned them over and said, Get out of here. How dare you? How dare you turn my father's house into a marketplace? You know what struck me? Those words, my father's house. He didn't say, how dare you turn the temple into a marketplace? How dare you turn my father's house? And I'm thinking, he really is claiming to be the Messiah. He really is claiming to be the Son of God. And then I remembered Psalm 69, verse 9, where it says, zeal for my father's house will consume me. And it's like, Jesus was so zealous for the temple, for his father's house. He was so zealous to see people meet with their God. It consumed him. It ate him up. It led him to his death. And now the religious people, the Jews, they didn't like Jesus turning over their tables, and they did what we all do. They said to Jesus, "What what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? What what's your credentials, Jesus? What what sign will you give us?" And, you know. I expected Jesus to do a miracle. He just turned water into wine, but he didn't do another miracle. He just said these really bizarre words. He said, Destroy this sanctuary and I will raise it up in three days. It's funny, you know, later on at the trial, the the Jews twisted Jesus' words and they, they claimed that Jesus had said, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it. He never said that. Actually, Jesus said, You destroy the temple. And I will raise it in three days. But I'll put my hand up. I did not have a clue what Jesus was on about. It made no sense to me. I was kind of with the Jews who said, This took 46 years to build, and you're going to raise it in three days. Do you know when I did understand it? It was three years later. At the empty tomb. And I got it. He wasn't talking about the physical building of the temple. He was talking about his body. And they destroyed his body, didn't they? And then three days later, he rose again. And I believed. I believed the scriptures. And I believed in Jesus. Because that's how you're supposed to read the Gospels. The Gospels are not like... The epistles are not like the Old Testament narratives or the Old Testament prophecies. They're they're stories. Real people who meet Jesus. Do you ever read the Gospels like that? I encourage you when you read the Gospels, just pick a person and imagine what it's like for them. But what do they mean? What do these, uh, uh, these stories mean? Two things for you tonight. Here's the first one. Jesus ushers in the age of abundant blessings. When Jesus comes, he ushers in the age of abundant blessings. So if you're following Jesus today, that means you're in the age of abundant blessings, blessings now, even greater blessings to come. That's the big point of the wedding at Cana. It's probably the most famous wedding in the world, hasn't it? Every Saturday around the whole world, this passage is read at people's weddings. But it's got nothing to do with weddings. We don't even know who the bride and groom are. There's not a soul who can tell you the name of the bride or the name of the groom or what she wore. It's not about weddings, it's not really about the miracle. It does show us that Jesus is a miracle maker. He is a miracle man. He does perform miracles. And it does show us that Jesus is full of compassion and kindness, and he provides for his people's needs. That is important. He provides lavishly and generously when we're in need. But that's not the main point. The main point is that Jesus ushers in this new age, the messianic age, is an age of blessing. Blessing. The problem is we don't understand it because we don't know our Bibles. So let's do some Bible work. Let's go back to Amos chapter 9. It's on page 849. The Jews would have understood this. They knew their Old Testament so well. Page 849, Amos chapter 9, verse 13. The days are coming, says the Lord, The days are coming when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the one who treads grapes, the sower of seed. Here it is. The days are coming when the mountains will drip with sweet wine and all the hills will flow with that sweet wine. And I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they will rebuild and occupy ruined cities and they'll plant vineyards and drink their wine and make gardens and eat their produce. I will plant them on their land and they will never again be uprooted from the land. It's it's a picture of prosperity. It's a picture of God's people returning to the land. And it's not just flowing with milk and honey. It's it's dripping with wine. It's a place of blessing where the curse has been lifted. And that's what they're waiting for when the Messiah comes. He'll usher in this new age a day of prosperity with wine in abundance. Flick back to Jeremiah 31. It's on page 724. Jeremiah thirty-one seven to four, verse ten. The one who scattered Israel will gather him. He will watch over him as a shepherd guards his flock. For the Lord has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the power of one stronger than he. Here it is. They will come and shout for joy on the on the heights of Zion. They will be radiant with joy because of the Lord's goodness, because of the grain the new wine, the fresh oil, because of the young of the flocks and herds, their life will be like an irrigated garden and they will no longer grow weak from hunger. The young women will rejoice with dancing while the young and old men rejoice together. I will return their mourning to joy and give them consolation and bring happiness out of grief. It's a picture of prosperity, of delight, of joy. Come back one more, one more passage, Isaiah 25. It's on page 642, Isaiah 25. And just one verse, verse 6. Isaiah 25, verse 6. The Lord of hosts will prepare a feast for all the peoples on this mountain. A feast of aged wine, choice meat, finely aged wine. And does John 2 begin to make more sense? God's people have been waiting for the day when God's King will come. It'll be a, a day of blessing, not curse. A day of prosperity. A day dripping and flowing with new wine. Now, this might shock some of you, but the Bible does insist on a prosperity gospel. When Jesus comes, he brings prosperity, he brings blessings in abundance. And maybe you're uncomfortable with that kind of language. Now, Of course, there's a distorted prosperity gospel. The Bible never promises you perfect health and perfect wealth and perfect happiness and perfect healing. And of course, it should grieve us when we hear of churches preaching this false prosperity gospel and making promises to people that God's word never promised. That should grieve us. On the other hand, for many of us, talk of prosperity, talk of blessings, is all future, as though there's nothing now. And for many of us, the now is just you know, negativity and hard work and mundane and drab and dreary. Of course Jesus said you've got to take up your cross and follow him. Of course Jesus said that you will suffer before glory. Of course Jesus said, expect trials and temptations. And of course the Bible says that the perfect blessings, the the perfect place is heaven. We'll never see perfection here on earth. But the Messiah has come. He has come the first time. We're just waiting for him to come again. And so we live this, this this overlap age where we do experience blessings. They're just not the perfect blessings yet. Unless you're English, you would have never heard of Noel Edmonds. Anyone here heard of Noel Edmonds? Yes, Englishman. He's a TV presenter. He famously said this. Jesus performed a great miracle. He turned water into wine. The church has performed a greater miracle. They've turned the wine back into water. And what he's saying there, I agree with him, is that the church has made it so drab and dreary and negative and hard work sort of following Jesus. It's as though Jesus never came. As though we're still living in the exile and Jesus never came, the Messiah is never here yet. So do you live your life following Jesus with these, these these abundant blessings. Do you wake up in the morning and say, How blessed I am to be a child of God? What are the blessings that you enjoy now as you wait for heaven? Tell me. What are some of the blessings that you enjoy today because you're following Jesus as you wait for heaven? Tell me. Peace with God. Peace with your Maker. Peace with your Heavenly Father. What else? A certainty. A certainty that Jesus will get you there. It's not about you getting there. Jesus will get you there. The blessings of freedom. Like what you said? Freedom from sin. Blessings of... You get to know him better and better and better. Hope. Forgiveness. The blessings of church. The blessings of Fellowship the blessings of walking with Jesus as a church family. These are all the things that you get to enjoy because Jesus has come. He's ushered in this new age. So please don't turn the wine back into the the water. You have true satisfaction. You have true contentment. You have true joy in Jesus. And we're supposed to say it's a rich and wonderful thing to follow Jesus, as I wait for glory. It's a rich and wonderful thing to follow Jesus, as I wait for glory. That's the water of the wine. Jesus ushered this new age of blessing. Uh, secondly, Jesus radically redeems religion. That's the point of the the temple cleansing. It's disturbing for the religious people. It's disturbing for people who find their spiritual security in a building, or a place, or a system, rather than the person of Jesus. Because Jesus cleanses this temple. What was the temple for? The temple was a place where people offered sacrifices to receive forgiveness. It's a place to meet with their God. It's a place where God was symbolically present. So when Jesus comes and cleanses the temple, it's less about the sheep and less about the goats and more about the hearts of the people. Jesus is angry with the way that these religious people have abused and misused God's temple. And when Jesus steps into the world, he radically changes the course of history. When Jesus steps into the world, he radically changes the course of history. You read uh, Samuel Beckett's *Waiting for Godot*. I put my hand up and say I find it really boring and quite depressing. (laughs) It's basically just two tramps who are having this conversation, waiting for Godot to arrive, but Godot never arrives. Isn't this poem by Mike Starkey? It's called *When Godot Arrived*. The audience were all well dressed and sat contentedly depressed at the pointlessness of the modern age, when suddenly Godot walked on stage. The jawbones of the actors dropped when suddenly their waiting stopped. The prompt girl tried to find the page where Godot was meant to walk on stage. The usherette could sense disaster when the manager ran past her, working out the extra wage now that Godot had walked on stage. The critics said they found it hard to take joy in such avant-garde, it sport the spirit of the age to have a Godo walk on stage. The audience agreed it would wreck it to have a happy end to Beckett. So they all walked out in rage when they saw Godo walk on stage. But the lady in the crocheted shawl sitting in the lower stall leaned into her friend and said she did like a happy end. Now Godo walked on stage. And it's like Godo has walked on stage. She's walked into his temple. And it's not the atheists who are outraged. It's not the atheists who are shocked. It's the religious people. They walk out in rage because God has walked into his temple. And he's rebuked them. What is he rebuking them for? He's rebuking them for turning the temple to a marketplace. Yes, that's a right rebuke. Because by selling the cattle and the sheep and the goats in that court of the Gentiles, they're actually stopping Gentile people from meeting with God. It is right to rebuke people when they do anything to stop people meeting Jesus, isn't it? Doesn't the church need to be rebuked when they put a barrier or hoops to jump through to stop people meeting Jesus? But it's not just rebuking them for that. It's rebuking their, their pride. They think they've created their own systems, their own religion. They're meeting God on their terms. But much more than that, Jesus steps onto the stage, God walks onto the stage and says, I am now the temple. That's the point. When Jesus walks on stage, he's saying, I am the temple. I'm the place you meet with God. I'm the person who offers forgiveness. I'm the one who you need to come to. Not a building, but a person. That's the point of the cleansing of the temple. He's not talking about whether you have bookstores or coffee machines or drums in church. He's talking about whether people meet Jesus in this place or whether you just offer them religion. How do you spot a religious person? A religious person loves to talk about church but not about Jesus. A religious person hates any change (laughs) because it's all about them, not about others and Jesus. Or ask someone, are you a Christian? And if they say, oh, I go to church, you're supposed to say, it's not about going to church, it's actually following Jesus. And a religious person finds their security in what they do rather than what Jesus has done. So here's my question, are you religious or do you have faith? They're two very different questions. Is your trust in the person of Jesus or is your trust in a system and a building and a place? This whole passage is about faith. It's supposed to invoke faith. You know, Mary had faith back in verse 5. Do whatever he tells you, she says. I trust him. The disciples had faith in verse 11. He displayed his glory. His disciples had faith. They believed in him. Now when I talk about faith, I just mean you put your trust in Jesus. You're following Jesus. But there were some people in this passage who didn't have genuine faith. They were just fans, not followers. You you meet them in verse 23, don't you? While Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many trusted in his name when they saw the signs, but they were just fans. They weren't followers. How, do I, how can I say that? Verse 24, Jesus would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. He knew their hearts. And he's spot on because by chapter 6, all these fans have deserted Jesus. They're not true followers. How do you spot a fan rather than a follower? Just ask them the question when, when, when Jesus says things that you don't like, will you obey or will you do your own thing? When Jesus says something that clashes with your way of thinking or your attitude, it's such an important moment. If you've got faith, you obey. So I started asking is your faith flourishing or is your faith fading? I discovered an extraordinary thing this week. I've been a Christian for 23 years and I've always thought of faith as a bit like Jesus offers me an invitation to the wedding feast. And faith is me accepting the invitation. And that's partly true. But faith is much more profound than that. Faith is much more than just accepting an invitation to a wedding feast. Here's what faith is. Faith is Jesus doing this, and getting down on one knee before you and saying, "Will you marry me?" Because he's the bridegroom, and the church is his bride. And if you're part of the church, you're part of the bride. Will you do life with me? Will you follow me? Will you trust me? Will you, will you let me lead you? Faith is that sort of that marriage relationship and just like a marriage relationship you know it only flourishes if you actually spend lots of time together and get to know each other better and you communicate well and if your faith is going to f- flourish just do life with Jesus spend time with him get to know him better do the highs and lows and just trust him and let him lead you you let him lead you through life rather than thinking that yours know best. If you do that, I can guarantee that your faith will flourish and not fade. Let me pray. Father, we want to be people. with a flourishing faith. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to see his glory, to see his grace, so the things of this earth will grow strangely dim.